Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in health tech, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a senior growth operations manager at Well, a health technology and services company. But before I introduce you to Rohini Rajgopal, a 2015 UC Berkeley grad, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that gives you insights into dozens of different jobs and industries from the professionals like Rohini who actually work in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Rohini Rajgopal, a senior growth operations manager at Well. Prior to joining Well in July 2022, Rohini spent a year working under contract at J&J, also known as Johnson & Johnson, as a global market access innovation associate. After graduating from college, Rohini spent almost four and a half years at Mercer, a global consulting leader in talent, that's another word for HR, health, retirement, and investments. Rohini, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am indeed. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. Oh my goodness. I am super excited for this interview. And I actually think, were you just finishing off a Diet Coke there? I was not. I have in the afternoons, my drink of choice is these, the carbonated waters. Oh, that's my like afternoon uh, drink. But yes. <laughs> okay. So do you drink any caffeinated I beverages? I have uh, coffee every morning. I just yeah. actually, one of my big kid purchases when I, I just got my job last year was to buy myself a nice coffee machine. So I have like a fancy ninja one that allows me to make a variety of different coffees, which I, I truly enjoy every morning. Love it. And do you have a particular type, particular cappuccino? Like cappuccino. Yes. They are mm. my go to. I love a good cappuccino. And with whole milk or skim or whole, whole milk. Yep. Okay. That's the way to go. I'm a nut milk person, but I, I used mm. to be whole milk. It's all good. <laughs> okay, Rohini. So we are doing this interview, so our listeners know, at the very end of June 2023. And in I'm guessing just a few days, you're going to have been at your current job at Well, a health technology and services company for one whole year. 
I know. I, I genuinely can't believe it. It's gone by so so quickly, but also it feels so long. But yes, just in about two or three weeks, I will have been there for one whole year. Wow, very exciting. I did a little research online and I see that Well Digital, I'm not sure if that's the same thing as Well. You're nodding your head, yes? Yes. Okay, that Well Digital has an app that has gotten thousands of five-star ratings and it describes itself as the first engagement platform to deliver a personalized daily whole health partner at scale. And it says it's a tech enabled concierge health for all. Can you please help our (laughs) young listeners and me better understand how well actually does this? Yes. uh, Fantastic question. There's a lot of like industry jargon terms in there that can be kind of difficult to decipher through. So certainly. So well, we are in, we are a digital health company. Our headquarters are here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, as well as Newton, Massachusetts. So just outside of Boston. And we are really focused on engaging people in their day-to-day health. So when I say that, uh, one of our co-founders, Gary Loveman, used to be the CEO of Caesars Entertainment in Vegas and had a lot of really rich background in behavioral economics, kind of entertainment, gaming, marketing, those types of principles. And a lot of folks from our leadership team were also in that space. That space you don't really think of associating in healthcare. So how did the, you know, the, the merge happen? Our other co-founder, Dave Weary, um, spent his career in the healthcare space. And together, they kind of brought together this idea of how do we better engage people in their health? There are so many resources that exist out there. The healthcare industry in this country in particular, a little bit of a hot mess and probably will continue to be for quite some time. But how do we really help people ensure that they are taking the right steps to help themselves improve their day-to-day health? everything in the preventative space. So really focused on physical health, behavioral health, emotional health, mental health, and then everything in between that people don't typically associate with your health, but oftentimes does affect your overall health. So for example, uh, the grief of losing a pet or a loved one, or, you know, vitamin D deficiency, or, you know, figuring out just general day-to-day stressors. And so our app is a mix between digital content that is fully personalized to everyone, where you, you know, put in some inputs in an app and all of the content is personalized to you. And then knowing that healthcare is really hard and it's a really intimate subject, um, having that human support is really important too. So we have a team of human guides. So it's basically a one-stop shop for all of your healthcare needs, a place to go to for any healthcare question you have, you go there. Amazing. Does that help it's, a little bit? It does so much. It kind of sounds like Fitbit on steroids. I mean, I, I don't mean to say yeah, that it's no, about no, no. counting your steps, but it's, it's like taking all of these things that have been segmented and siloed and trying to put it all in one place on one app. Agreed. So for example, it's a fantastic comparison. I like to think of it like you have Spotify, right? Spotify is like, I would say your daily music partner. I listen to Spotify to and from work. I'll, you know, when I'm out on a walk with my dog, I listen to a podcast. 
And Spotify will oftentimes, you know, they have like the the daily mixes. So it, based on what I'm listening to, it'll give me, oh, I think you're going to like XYZ. And that's how I, you know, discover new music, new podcasts, things of that nature. That's my go-to place for anything music auditory wise. I would say we're trying to do the same thing, but with health. So, you know, I have a rash on my hand. Do I need to be concerned about that? Or I think I sprained my ankle. Should I go to the urgent care or the emergency room? Like, what's the go-to for that? Figuring out, I think I need to get a dental checkup. Does my insurance cover that? How does that work? All of those types of questions, we would be the go-to spot for that. And everything, again, is really personalized to you. Because you see a lot of personalization in all other industries. Why not healthcare? Yeah. And that involves AI. Yes. Yes. Definitely. So cool. All right. So what does it mean to be a senior growth operations manager? I hope our listeners are aware of the fact that every company, for the most part, kind of makes up its own job titles. So I don't know, like as somebody on the outside, if that means you're in biz dev in business development or something else? Great question. Yes. So my role, I sit within our sales and growth team. So hopefully that is a clear, at least from the get-go, sales and growth. I would say certainly aspects of business development, if people are familiar with that term. Other terms that I have heard my uh, title reflected in, you could say sales operations, Revenue operations, growth operations, go to market operations, sales enablement, any of those types of terms, I would say certainly reflect the scope of what I do. And what, what exactly do I do? I am still honestly, I feel like my role evolves. And I think maybe that's something that people don't know, but certainly evolves with time. And given that I'm at a startup, as we grow, my job responsibilities certainly evolve. But I'll say, so growth operations, I am essentially, I would say like the grand central station of our sales team. So I am in charge of a lot of strategy and operations for enabling the growth of our company, ensuring that we are being responsible with building the infrastructure that our sales and growth team needs to sustainably scale. So in a nutshell, I'm essentially helping... We have Our sales and growth team is also very small. We're at a startup. There's about six of us that are on the team, including our chief growth officer. So she's on the team. We have three sales reps that are in charge of growing you know, and building relationships, doing the quote-unquote traditional work that I would say the sales representatives do, building relationships, working with clients, things of that nature. And they're absolutely fantastic with it. And then we have the last member of our team um, is kind of a liaison in between our, our sales and growth team and the rest of our internal operations, looking at platform strategy. Are we taking things from the outside, what we're hearing from clients, and then translating it to our internal teams? Can we actually do what so-and-so asked us to do? Uh, my role, I kind of at the, the center of those team members. And so ensuring that we're translating stuff from the outside world into whatever our sales reps are hearing. Hey, Rohini, I need help with X for this particular client. I will help them with X. Working with our chief growth officer to uh, build out our growth strategy. Where do we want to be next year? Where do we want to be in five years? Okay, building out that vision and then actually mapping out the tactical nature of the day-to-day work. 
And then lastly, I would say a lot of internal kind of stakeholder coordination. So what does that term mean? That's a very fancy term to say, essentially working with the other teams at well. So our marketing team, sales and marketing should work pretty closely with each other. Our client success team. So once we actually do get a client and our, our client success team is responsible for interacting with them on a day-to-day basis, making sure that there is any learnings that they have of, you know, our client is interested in X. Can you make sure that when you talk to new clients, you tell them that we can do X or, you know, something to that effect. And then a lot of our health outcomes teams, just other teams across our company, making sure that the work that they are doing is being represented appropriately when we go and talk to clients. Oh, that is wonderful. That really paints the picture. I want to just dig in a little bit more, Rohini, into what it means at well to do business development, to be involved in that growth. Because as somebody who's never worked in sales, I, I always thought that sales meant, you know, you're selling to more individuals. Whereas at some companies, when they talk about business development, they're looking at like partnerships, whether at a company like, well, is it partnerships with healthcare, with meditation platforms, with fitness companies? You know, where does that take you? It's a fantastic question. So I also had a similar, I never thought I was going to be in sales. I like, and I'm not technically, I am, I suppose. I, I work on the sales and growth team, but I always thought exactly what you said, you know, sales rep, they'll go. I, I have the show, The Office, right? That's it. was like, oh, okay, that's what Jim does, what Dwight does, etc. But at Well, our model, our sales model is a B2B model. So that's business to business. We are selling well our platform to another business. And I would say the other nuance is we're, we're technically B2B to C. So business to business to customer or consumer. So for example, what that, what that actually means in real layman's terms, one of our business models is to sell to employers. So for example, when you get a job, usually in this country, outside globally, whole different ballgame. But in this country, you typically get health insurance, you get you know, medical insurance, you get a whole set of benefits that your employer provides to you upon you know, signing for a job. You'll get your salary package and then this whole suite of benefits packages. Well, sells to employers. So we will work with HR teams or you know, whoever within the HR world is responsible for creating those benefit packages. And will essentially offer well as a benefit to their employees. So HR teams, for example, like why? Like why would you even do that? What's the point? What do they get out of it? Right? So HR teams, and I will say just like chief people, you know, the HR world, they care about their employees, right? They care about keeping their employees happy, healthy, satisfied. And if there is an opportunity and productive, productive, yes, great point. Um, And if there is an opportunity to enable that, whether um, through us, through other vendors, um, they might look at that, right? Depending on what the ROI might be, they will pay us some fee. And in return, we will deliver a service to their employees. So that's the B2B to C part, because it's not HR that's technically using it. It is all of the employees that work at a company. 
And so we essentially partner with them to offer well to their employees to manage their preventative health. And so for an HR company, if they're providing um, health insurance and you know managing the medical claims that will come in, they have a huge incentive to keep their employees healthy because the healthier their employees are, the less money that they have to then end up paying out in you know medical claims, for example. That's one model. They, you know, there's a ton of businesses that work in this space in particular. The other model that we looked at, and this is something that um, is near and dear to my heart. I worked at Mercer, as you had um, mentioned, and Mercer is an HR consulting firm. And so we would essentially be working with those employers. Those employers are, you know, they're probably inundated with the amount of vendors saying, hey, we can do this for your employees. Hey, we can do this for your employees. Um, And so they work with an HR consulting firm to kind of help them figure out what do we actually, what actually makes sense to do for our employee population. The only issue I feel like I had with that was that it's fantastic if you end up working at an employer that has the money and the desire and the bandwidth and ability to pay for those benefits on behalf of you. If you don't, in this country, you're kind of SOL in figuring out how to navigate the healthcare system here. And so at Well, we recognize that and want to ensure that our our overall mission is to be, I think, the world's most effective member in someone's health. But we'll start with the US for right now. But essentially offering up access to well for those that typically have the greatest need, those in underserved communities that have often been overlooked by the healthcare system. And so that requires a very different business model, because oftentimes those are lower income folks that may not have the ability or money to pay for a service like this, even though it would bring them tremendous value to have a go-to resource in managing their health. And so that business model looks very different. We're not working with HR companies there. um, And we're honestly in the process of figuring out what exactly we want that channel of growth to look like. We actually just had a strategy session a couple weeks ago trying to figure out, all right, we've been, you know, the the director of our community health partnerships, that's what this channel is called, also started just about a year ago. And so he's had about a year under his feet and we're doing kind of a reflective period moving forward, trying to figure out where exactly, how exactly when we say we want to serve those with the greatest need, what exactly does that mean? Who exactly do we want to serve? And when we figure out that population, how do we get to them? And how do we get to them in a way that's sustainable for us and sustainable for those members? I realize that giving you a suggestion for ways to think about paying that is not part of this interview, but off the top of my head, and I'll just put this on the table and let's move on. It would seem to me that it would be in the advantage to the advantage of hospitals that often see these patients on an emergency needs basis. It would be to their advantage not to have their resources diverted to these urgent care situations. And they would be interested in investing a relatively modest amount of money in comparison in preventative care. (laughs) No, that's exactly it. That's honestly, that's how our strategy process. So, you know, going back to like my day-to-day role, the strategy is like thinking through that, like who else has a business incentive to be in this space, you know, who, if we were to offer services to someone whose revenue could we, and their business model, could we actually directly affect to your point? Yes. Fantastic suggestion. Um, when we are considering 
who else is paying out a bunch of money that if they had a service like ours that would help folks kind of stay on top of their health more and have another resource for them, who would benefit from that? And those are the folks that we want to go after, you know, in terms of trying to expand and grow and scale. Yeah. And I'm sure you need data to prove it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yes. <laughs> so we're going to be getting more into your educational background in a couple of minutes. But suffice it to say, you majored in public health and public policy at Berkeley. And for those young listeners who are still yeah. in school and maybe studying public health or health policy, what are the range of employment opportunities, Rohini, that are <laughs> awaiting them when they graduate? Because I often tell my listeners and the students that I coach that their major in school is not the tiny house that they're going to be forced to live in for the rest of their lives. And instead, yeah. it's the foundation of a professional skyscraper that they're going to be building over the course of their professional lives with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in that skyscraper. Yes. No, I 100% agree. Public health is, <laughs> I'm laughing because there are literally thousands of jobs and paths that you could take with that background. And honestly, that was probably why I kind of chose it, I'll say, maybe. I knew that, so my mom is a surgeon um, by background and training. And so there, there was always a peak of interest in the kind of medicine healthcare space. Um, my aunt works in global health right now. And among those two, I knew, I think, from like a younger age that I wanted to do something for my career that helped folks in some way, shape or form. I wanted to give back. And that has certainly carried through to what I'm doing today. I quickly realized, I thought initially that I wanted to be pre-med, which I think is not a unique story. There's a lot of people that I've talked to, especially in the public health space that thought they wanted to go that route. From seeing firsthand what my mom kind of went through and what her lifestyle was like, uh, coupled with the fact that I would often faint at the sight of blood. And um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which was kind of like, hmm, that might be a little difficult um, if I really wanted to go into medicine that way. But coupled with those two, I think I had taken a class, I think freshman year. I had gone in knowing that I wanted kind of pre med just in case I changed my mind. And I think pretty quickly, sophomore year, I realized, you know, with my mom's schedule and what she was doing, you know, the blood issue that I just raised. I didn't think that pre-med was actually for me. And then I was like, okay, well, what else is there then in healthcare? You know, I only thought of it as medicine. That was it. Turns out, obviously, there's a ton of stuff you can do. So public health at Berkeley was really great because you had to learn a lot of the science. I'm pretty sure I still had to take, or maybe I took based on the pre-med path, you know, your typical biology, chemistry, physics, had to do those. But then there was also a huge emphasis on social sciences. So like psychology, um, I think economics, sociology, and I really personally appreciated the blend between hard sciences and social sciences. I think they, they worked really well together. And for me, I think I wanted to, given that I was still on a pre-med path, quote unquote, or at least had scheduled my classes that way, I wanted to lean a bit more into the social sciences space and ended up minoring in public policy, which was fantastic for me. And so I initially thought that I was like, hmm, maybe with this combination, I will go and 
work on the ACA and work on like national healthcare policy. That was my initial intent. Um, what is those. the ACA? Great question. The Affordable Care Act. So that was a piece of legislation passed. Oh, I don't even know what the dates were at this point, but many, many years ago. But I thought that I wanted to work on, you know, healthcare policy at a national level. I quickly realized that I am a bit of an impatient person. And working in the policy space, things take a lot of time to happen. And there are a lot of iterations, a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion that goes into pieces. I think policy work is incredibly impactful. But I knew for myself that that was not probably going to be the best path for me because I was going to get frustrated really quickly. And that's probably not the best place to use my skills at that point. So I had taken a class. I think my junior year, I think it was Public Health 150D, um, taught by Professor Robin Flagg. I still remember her name. She was fantastic. And she had a class on the US healthcare system. And it was so fascinating to me, just how system works. If anyone, I still genuinely, I've spent my whole career in this, and I still don't understand the ins and outs of the healthcare system. But there's a huge intersection between business and healthcare in this country. Whether you like it or not, that's just how things are done here. And so I figured, hmm, I might take my next step in trying to explore what that space looks like, which is why I went into consulting after undergrad. But going back to your original question of like, what are the paths? There are truly so, so, so many paths that you can take for public health because public health to me, and I'm obviously very biased, but I think it's the foundational element of literally anything that we do in this country. So you're caring for the the health of a population is what public health is at the core. So you could take that on a million different paths in the environmental space. You could take it in the global health space and community health space and the hospital space and the health insurance space in the, you know, I, you could just keep going on and on with that. Yeah. And obviously in the tech space. Yes. Yes. That's certainly one that's come up, I would say a lot more in the last decade or so um, was not probably like, I don't think actually my company existed. I mean, it did not. I know we started in 2019, but Companies like mine didn't really exist in the, you know, when I had graduated. I think there's a lot more opportunities now, which is really exciting because who knows in another 10 years, you know, people that are graduating right now, your job may not exist yet, you know, for what you're doing when you're 40 or 50. It just hasn't been created. I'll say my brother, so I have younger siblings. My brother is a senior in high school or is going to be a senior in high school this fall. And he's really interested in data science. And there are colleges now that and universities that offer data science as a major that did not exist when I was in school. So just just throwing that out there that um, you may be surprised at what doors open. Yes. On your career. Oh, such a beautiful, inspirational point there. I love it, Rohini. So you've alluded to it. What was your first job when you graduated? And do you remember how you got it? Yeah, I remember I, so I was a little, I remember my, my thinking process for getting a job. I was a little afraid that I wasn't going to find a job after undergrad. I don't really know why. I don't know if there was a lot of people that when I had graduated, people were like, oh, good luck, you know, trying to find a job out there, things of that nature. And I think it is certainly my, uh, in my personality to be a bit more risk averse and a bit more conservative from that standpoint. And so I worked through our career center on campus. And 
our career center would have a bunch of companies come in to recruit students. And you know, you would drop your resume in and maybe a cover letter or something like that. And then companies would come and interview you on campus. And then basically by like Thanksgiving time of your fall of your senior year, you would have a job lined up. So that was the path I took. Again, truly like not really knowing. I mean, it's hard to know. You have no idea what the job actually is going to entail. But I was like, all right, I understood some of the words at Mercer and I said healthcare and it had benefits and, you know, the company seemed interesting enough and I liked all the people. I think that was something that was really important. I liked all the people that I was interviewing with knowing that those would be my future colleagues and ended up going there right after school. So I was, I started out as a health and benefits analyst, like I mentioned, working with employers and I was in our San Francisco office. So a lot of our clients or the employers that we would work with were San Francisco or Bay Area, I should say, based companies. So if you can imagine, a lot of Silicon Valley employers, a lot of companies that are really progressive, have a lot of money, want to do things for their employees, care about their employees. And so for me, it was really interesting because I had a lot of exposure to all of that work from the get-go. But the truth is you had not studied human resources. Mm-mm. There are plenty not. of people who major in it in school. Yeah. I've actually interviewed some of them. Was it hard to convince Mercer that somebody who was a public health major would be hundred yeah, percent. That was something that I was I was scared about. Like I knew that I had like I understood how the healthcare industry worked a little bit because I had taken that class, right? So I was like, all right, I understand what employer sponsored insurance is. That makes sense to me. But I told them I was like, I I didn't major in business. I didn't do consulting projects. I didn't really know what the concept of consulting was at the time. And I said, is that that going to be a problem that I I really know the subject matter, but the skills and stuff, I don't really know. And they said, no, like you'll just learn stuff on the job. And that's that's what I did. And honestly, that's what I'm still doing today. (laughs) I'll say, I don't think anyone, you know, is you're not going to fit things 100% and things are going to shift and change. And so, yeah, just being ready to adapt and learn and grow on the job, I think is just super important. What was the advantage of getting an insider's peak, like being the proverbial fly on the wall inside other companies, human resources departments without actually being tied to any one of them? Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, people genuinely care, I think. And I think that that's hard because I feel like in today's world, there's so much turmoil that's happening in the world today. There's, you know, quiet quitting, things of that nature, um, all of this stuff on social media about, you know, your job and your, your life and work-life balance, this and that. And at least from all of the people that I worked with, um, all of the employers and HR leaders, they all care about their employees. And, you know, when employees actually reach out to them with significant issues, you know, whether that's leave or healthcare related or something totally different, they tried to do what they could to to help their employees. And I think it's, it's hard to lose sight of that. Um, at the end of the day, they are also people. They also have, you know, <laughs> physical, mental capacity constraints and also bureaucratic constraints that they have to work with, like under and with, within. And so I think, to me, it just gave me a, a better perspective on just giving people a little bit of grace, especially when things are just super chaotic. But um, knowing I feel like people have a good intent with what they're doing. And I try to keep that in mind. 
did that experience and then when you were promoted because you then became a senior health benefits analyst mm-hmm. and were then promoted to a total health management associate again yeah who the heck knows what that title means right and then a senior associate there did those roles give you a particular kind of valuable insight that has helped you since you joined well yes i mean certainly i think because today like half of my job, you know, our, our two growth channels at the moment um, is working through employers. So certainly, uh, all of the insights that I've I had from Mercer, you know, sitting in those rooms, working with clients, knowing what they liked, what they didn't like, what made them uncomfortable, what things were super exciting towards them, all of that insight has certainly helped in what I'm doing today. And that's more of like, subject matter stuff, right? That's the quote, unquote, fluffier stuff that you can't like that's not a, a hard line skill. That's just stuff that I've absorbed over the years in terms of what uh, people's perspectives and things of that nature. I will also say that working at Mercer, this, the hard skills in terms of you know designing a strategy, conducting focus groups, looking through data, all of that stuff has certainly helped me in the role that I am in today and as well as um, throughout grad school. Can you speak to students about how they should think about what they've learned from books and lectures inside the classroom and how fungible those skills are and how adaptable and transferable they are in the real world? Yeah. Oh, man. I think it's a really good question. I think, I mean, the stuff that you learn in school, and I've been in school, obviously, for quite some time um, with undergrad as well as grad school. Yes, you're learning like frameworks or, you know, you followed this, you know, seven steps to get this type of decision, like those types of things. And while those are really helpful, I think the greatest thing that you learn from school is how to kind of translate that into the real world. It's I mean, no job is going to take okay, I learned in, you know, whatever class 101, use what I learned in lecture one in what I'm doing tomorrow, like it doesn't transfer like that at all. It's a matter of just Um, you know, the relationships, the a lot of the softer skills in terms of like time management, organization, those types of things, I think are what are really useful in a in a job moving forward, you know, recognizing that you're not going to know everything when you first start and you shouldn't know everything. If you do know everything, that's not the right job for you, you should always be challenged and should be learning about things. And so as long as you have that growth mindset, um, and you're building on that growth mindset in undergrad, and you know, in whatever other jobs you do after that, I think that that's what's really important. So Rohini just mentioned growth mindset, there is a fantastic book, if you haven't read it called Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. And is she at Berkeley? I know she's on the West Coast. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. So it's a fantastic book and it's all about why to adopt a growth mindset and look at your fails as opportunities to learn. Am I correct, Rohini, in in maybe distilling what you had just said in terms of when you mentioned the soft skills that are probably more valuable than the actual subject matter expertise, that it's like critical thinking, yes, writing, learning how to take a bunch of information and just distill it down and how to move into areas that you're not familiar with and educate yourself on them. 100%. Exactly right. Great. 
So you also believe very strongly, I know, that students need to stay true to what they really want from their own career, whether it is a paycheck or a passion. What do you think are the pressures? What do you know, having been a student, and we're going to get into your grad school stuff in just a second here, but are the pressures on students not to do that? And any advice that you have for them as to how to resist those pressures? Yeah, that is a fantastic question and one I really, really grappled with in my grad school years in particular. So advice on exactly that. I think it is so easy to get caught up with what everybody else is doing. So-and-so just got an offer from XYZ company for XYZ dollars or salary-wise. And -and so-and-so is going to be traveling the world doing something else. And, you know, it's like, oh, wow, all of those sound really cool. I'm not doing that. Or at least I, I don't think I'm doing that. Should I be doing that? I don't know. You know, those types of questions, it's so hard to distance yourself from that and remove yourself and ignore what's going on. I get it. I'm like, I've been there. And I think, I mean, honestly, I would say that in undergrad, I fell for that. I was scared. Someone said, Oh, you're not going to get a job after graduation. I didn't trust myself. And so I said, Okay, I'm panicking. I'm just going to go straight to the career center and just like pick up a job from there. Hopefully that'll work out. And like, yes, I lucked out. It did work out. I liked what I did. But Part of me kind of wishes, okay, I had actually held out because I know, you know, recruiting cycles, at least for a lot of those business and healthcare jobs were really during the fall, but all of the kind of nonprofit and geo work that happens in the public health setting that happened during the spring. And I was so scared that I wasn't going to get a job that I didn't even try for that because I I was so scared. So for me, back around for grad school, um, same type of thing happened, right? Like they had career centers, you know, network recruiting on campus in the fall. I had a ton of classmates that went that route and got jobs immediately September, October. I was like, Oh my God, like, I don't have a job yet. But this time around, I was much more thoughtful with my approach. And I said, you know what, you're going to get a job, like believe in yourself. You've come this far, you're going to be fine. Whatever job you have after is going to be the right one for you. And you're going to be really deliberate about it this time. And so it was hard to, you know, distance, okay, so and so, you know, got this job, so and so got that job, that's fine. Everyone's journey is different. That's something that we just keep telling yourself over and over again, everyone's journey is different. And so I had done a lot of reflecting during grad school on what do I actually want the next stage in my career to look? I know that this is not going to be my dream or my job for life, right? Like, I mean, it could be, sure. But it's, it's better to just think of it as like, this is what I'm doing right after graduate school. And so for me, it was a lot of reflecting on like, what do I like doing? Like, what do I actually like on a high level? Yes, I know I want to help increase access to healthcare for underserved communities using technology and innovation. Like that's my like, go to I love I love work that is working towards that. What does that look like on Tuesday at 3pm on Friday at 9am? Like, what does it actually look like? And so I did a lot of reflecting of what I was doing at Mercer, what I did in grad school, you know, any of the other jobs I had, what were the actual tasks that brought me joy? And then what were the tasks that I hated that were sucking energy from me that anytime someone gave me that task to do, I was like, Oh, oh my God, this is terrible. I don't want to do this. And I wrote down a list of all of those. Like, all right, so this is, you know, this is really helpful in painting out like what brings me joy and what sets my energy. And then from there, I could actually start to decipher, okay, maybe I have a better understanding of the types of jobs that would have a lot of these joy 
tasks versus jobs that had a lot of the energy sapping tasks and kind of went from there. And how did it work? I mean, how did it work out? (laughs) It worked out beautifully. I can genuinely say I'm truly in a job that I love right now. And I feel really energized to go to work every day. And I'm really glad that I, I stuck it out, quote unquote. Um, and didn't panic and just go with like, oh, just because, you know, Betty got a job at XYZ, I should also go and get a job there because Betty has Betty's own journey and Rohini has Rohini's own journey. Exactly. What about the first step after you finish grad school? And I, and I, maybe before I ask you that question, let me let our listeners know, because it's pretty darn impressive (laughs) what you did over the course of three years in grad school in the fall of 2019. And Rohini graduated in the spring of 2015. She decided to enroll in grad school at the University of North Carolina at the Gillings. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm -hmm. Or Gillings? Gillings School of Global Public Health. And that was to get an MA. And she also got an MBA concurrently at UNC's Keenan Flagler Business School. And she finished grad school last spring in May or June of 2022, she obviously had to navigate, as many of you have, the coronavirus pandemic, remote learning, all of that during this time. But nonetheless, I just want to touch on some of Rohini's incredible experiences that she had while she was in school. This is outside the classroom. She got a fellowship with the Global Digital Health Network. She worked as a consultant, a consultant at UNC's Entrepreneurship Center, where she advised a startup focused on an AI-powered digital health experience. Does that ring a bell, maybe? And she worked as a graduate research assistant, drafting a literature review of over 35 studies around growing global mistrust and consequences within the patient-provider relationship across four countries. How valuable were these experiences, Rohini, in helping you land your next jobs? Not just the job that you have now, but the job you got right after you graduated at Johnson & Johnson, first as an intern working on global market access, and then as a full-time associate on the global market access innovation team. Yeah, they were all super, super helpful for me. My public health degree, so it was the the MSPH work at Gillings that um, with the literature review, all of that really hardcore research, I would say, and better understanding of the public health landscape. Super, super helpful. The um, entrepreneurship work that I did was also really, really helpful for myself. I remember actually at the time, this was during business school and our program was set up such that The first year was all public health. So from 2019 to 2020 was fully MSPH public health work. Then the second year was all business school. And then the last year was kind of a mix between the two degrees. And so at the time, I remember talking to one of my classmates because this job posting had come out for a consultant at the Entrepreneurship Center. And I was like, oh, this would be really cool. I think I'm interested in the startup space, but I'm not sure. And I'm also really concerned because I wanted to take XYZ class and, you know, wanted to have time for fun and friends and this and that. And I think I was talking to a mentor and I was like, should I do it? Should I not do it? And she was like, I regret not doing it. And I said, yeah, I think I am. If I didn't do this, I feel like I would possibly lose out on the opportunity to try out or test out the startup space. 
And she was like, okay, if you're going to regret it, like do it. And I was like, oh, but the next like three months are going to be really, really hard. And she said, yeah, but going back to that question, do you think you can, you know, stick it out for three months if this is something that is really exciting to you? And I said, yes, I think, you know, did a little pros and cons weighing there. And I was like, yes, I think I'm going to do it. And I did it and I loved it. And it obviously impacted, you know, my mindset going into my final year of what I actually wanted to do. I, I used that as kind of a testing ground for the startup space. And then the Johnson & Johnson work I actually did during school. So my second internship, I was testing out kind of the global pharma space. So I was like, I don't know, maybe this is something I want to do. Not sure. I did that and then worked through my final year on that same team and another testing ground. And I realized, you know what? I don't think I actually want to do this. I really liked that startup experience a lot more than I liked what I'm doing at, at Johnson & Johnson. And that, I mean, is exactly where I am now back in the startup space. So definitely those extracurricular, quote unquote, jobs, internships, etc. Super helpful. And again, figuring out what do I like? and What do I not like? Amazing. And that is exactly what these experiences are all about. It's test driving. Yeah, 100%. So we are getting to the end of our interview, Rohini, and I'd like to ask you a few final questions that I try to ask all T4C guests. And the first question, admittedly, is a relatively new addition, and it is about the role of what some people call serendipity, what others might call divine providence, a lucky break, or what I like to call magic in moving you in a direction perhaps that you couldn't have predicted when you were at Berkeley. Yeah. Um, so I will say flat out, the job that I am in right now was purely from that. I was not searching out well. I had not heard of well. I was, this was, I think, January of last year. So this is my second semester of my grad school year. I was still looking for a job. Knew that I wanted it to be in the healthcare, uh, health tech startup space. And got connected to an alum from Gillings who had done some work in the digital health space. And he said, Hey, do you want to just grab lunch? And, you know, I will, I'll hear about what you're interested in and see if I can help you. And I was like, Okay, sure. So I took lunch with him and I was explaining what I was interested in, this and that. He said, Oh, like I have a friend who runs this company well in Chapel Hill. They kind of sort of do what you're interested in, but I'm not really sure. Like I can just connect you with my friend. And I was like, okay, sure, why not? You know, I'm not thinking anything of it. And ended up getting connected to one of the co-founders and the president, uh, Dave Weary. And we, you know, he invited me over to the office for kind of a casual interview and outlined what he was thinking, what he needed for, you know, the sales and growth team. And then he asked me, he was like, does any of this sound interesting to you? Like, what roles would you see yourself in? I said, great question. I don't know. I should probably think about that and I'll come back to you searching and thinking through, okay, what do I actually want to be doing? And lo and behold, it all worked out. I realized, yeah, actually, you know, the positions that he was outlining was something that I was really interested in. And I genuinely would never have found that out unless I had taken lunch with the alum from UNC and agreed to have a conversation. That was it. I wasn't saying yes to a job. I wasn't, you know, even writing an application or anything. I was just saying yes to a conversation. And I had no idea that it would land me in this amazing role that I'm in right now. And how did you get connected to that alum? How and why? Yeah, I had asked the director of our, of my, so the MSPH program, I was in our health policy and management department. So the director of our health policy and management department, I said, Hey, I'm looking for a job. This is what I'm interested in, blah, blah, blah. Do you have any alumni connections in the space that you could connect me with? And so I directly reached out. I mean, that's what 
your, you know, your programs, your schools, your, your majors, etc. should be helping you with your advisors. I reached out to my advisor and I said, Hey, do you know anyone? He said, yep. Sent me a couple emails. And then I reached out from there and it just took off. Oh, love that story, Rohini. And the truth is most people have these serendipitous, magical experiences, but it isn't always something that they're connecting the dots to. Yeah, It's like so organic. It happens. And that's what I want students to internalize, that their lives are going to be, un- I mean, they can't even imagine where they're going to no be, idea. but be open to these opportunities, yes. be open to these conversations, to these meetups or yeah. coffee chats or whatever they are. Yep. hundred percent of that. Two final questions. Yeah. Could you share a time in your professional life, whether it was as an intern during your fellowship or as a full-time paid employee, when you failed or stumbled or maybe fell on your face? And the most important part of this story, Rohini, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, it's a really good question. I certainly have a moment, I have several of them, but one that I will talk about here um, was during yeah, the, the pandemic, which is a hard time for everyone. So we'll give, you know, wholehearted just around the board. It was difficult. And I remember doing this is again during my business school year, was doing a case competition, which is another kind of extracurricular activity that exists at graduate level programs and maybe undergrad as well. But it was essentially I was paired with a couple different other MBA team members from um, some international universities. I think I was working with two folks from Canada and one person from Italy. And the topic was designing telehealth business models for underserved communities. I was like, this is right up my alley. This is so interesting to me. I loved it. I was so excited about it. And our team of four were, were doing that. So for it was like a three-month thing where we'd meet weekly and kind of talk through what is our business model? How do we want it to work? You know, what population are we going? All of that stuff. And genuinely, again, was so excited about this. But it got to a point that the end of when we were actually about to present, I remember the night before we us we were supposed to actually record this thing because it was all virtual. I was so exhausted, literally hated. I didn't want to meet. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I felt so drained, so burnt out. And I hated the project. I genuinely was like, I don't want to do this. And that was a huge turning point for me because I paused and I was like, Rohini, like you were so excited about like excited about this. In January, this was something that like fills your cup. It should have filled your cup and it was for a bit, but it now got to a point where it was sucking from my cup. And it was a huge stopping point for me to pause and reflect and rearrange my priorities. I said, was it this particular thing? Were there other things in my life that were causing me to, you know, be a little burnt out in some way? And I think that was really important for me to to recognize that something that I thought was so exciting and so fun and had brought me a lot of joy was no longer doing that for me and um, reflect on why that was the case. And so for me, moving forward, I was fully burnt out. I was taking on way too much and was not actually serving myself by doing that. And so uh, moving forward, what I learned and something that I think I really, I'm very being very deliberate about in my full-time job now is to be conscious of how much I'm actually working, you know, and I think that it is really hard. Some people end up working 10, 12 hours a day, um, some, you know, work less. 
trying to figure out what the right balance is for me. There will certainly be days where at least I may need to work a little bit more, but then there's other times where things will be lighter and I'm, I'm okay with that because I am supported by a really great team that um, recognize time spent outside of work and how meaningful and necessary that is to bring your full self to work. And so for me, it's I've had too many days where I'm working more than, you know, 10 hours a day consistently. And I've had too many experiences where I've been burned out and I don't want to do that again. And that was something that I was really conscious about with a job postgraduate school. So did you compete in the in the case competition? We did finally. For me, it was like, this is not just a me thing. I had a team and I wasn't going to let down my team at that point in time. I think I told them, hey, I may not have two hours today. I only have X amount of time um, to try and set at least a little bit of a boundary. But after that, I was like, all right, we need it. We need to pause here, Rohini, and like really regroup before moving forward. Oh, great. And did you guys place it all? We did not, unfortunately, but it was still genuinely a really, really great learning experience. And that's all I wanted out of it. So absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think burnout is a it's such a real thing. And it's so important to be mindful of that. And I love what you said about setting boundaries. Yep. Great, great advice. Final question. If you could go back to Berkeley and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Rohini? Oh, it's a really good question. I think it's it's genuinely to focus on what you want. This is your life to live. This is not someone else's life to live. And while it is really hard, don't focus on what everyone else is doing and just focus on what you want to be doing on a day-to-day basis. To me, 40 hours a week is a significant portion of your time. And so I say might as well try and do it in something that you're interested in. And I feel like I'm, I'm blessed right now. And I've, I think I've been deliberate and thinking through that. And so I would encourage others to do the same. Um, you owe it to yourself to reflect on the things that you like and what you don't like and finding time to say, hey, do I need to pause and reset some things, reshuffle some things? recognizing that there are going to be many chapters in your life. You don't have to do everything all at once. This is the right time for me to try the startup phase. Who knows? In another five years, I may say, you know what? I don't think this is it. And I will shift to something else. Maybe I want to go back to J&J at that point. I have no idea. But again, just really focus on what you want to be doing and what it means to you. Love that. And to trust yourself. Yeah. Even though you may be in your early 20s or late teens, you know yourself better than anyone else. 100%. Rohini, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was so interesting for me personally. You have so much wisdom and I just thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Of course. Thank you so much, Andrea, for having me. I really appreciated being a part of this today. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.